Hey there, before we get started with the show, we just want to let you know today's Crypto Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Crypto Phenom Letter. This is a one-of-a-kind premium investment newsletter service that highlights the next winners coming in cryptocurrency tokens and equities. Get special access today at phenomcrypto.com slash realvision. That's phenomcrypto.com slash realvision. Sergey Nagarozarov, co-founder of Chainlink. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Thank you for having me. Great to chat with you again. Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Looking forward to this one, talking about CCIP, among other things. New news to talk about in just one moment on Chainlink. But first, let's take a look at the price action. Bitcoin right now trading at 26,440. It's off about 1% trailing 24 hours, off about two and a third percent trailing seven days. Ethereum trading right now at $1,839, also off about 1% trailing 24 hours uh, and off about two and a half percent trailing seven days. Since we're talking to Sergey Nazarov, we should say Chainlink right now trading at my screen at about six bucks, right now off about, let's call it 6% trailing seven days. Sergey, Always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Lots to talk about today. We've got a little bit of news flow on CCIP that I mentioned at the top of the show. Give us the 50,000-foot overview, Sergey. What's new this week in terms of what you guys are doing with this rollout? Sure. So CCIP is a messaging standard for communication among chains and uh, between chains and backend systems. And what has happened uh, this week was there, an there was an announcement about SWIFT DTCC, Euroclear, a number of top banks like BNY Mellon, BNP Paribas, Citi. So basically the world's largest market infrastructures and banks looking at using CCIP to do a set of three things. Connect their existing systems into blockchains uh, with the help of Swift messages as a way to communicate with blockchains uh, with CCIP doing the, the last leg of the communication with various chains connecting various private bank chains with each other uh, so that the assets put on any one bank chain gains a larger market by being connected to all the other bank chains, creating a kind of bank internet of contracts. And then also the ability to connect private chains to public chains, meaning that bank value can flow into the public blockchain world, which means that uh, we're going towards a world of an internet of contracts across bank chains and public chains, which is really what CCIP is, is looking to accelerate with these collaborations with large uh, in market infrastructures and, and banks. So Sergey, let's walk through the 50,000 foot overview here of what this actually means, what the goal is, and what the functionality you guys are creating uh, or attempting to create with this project. Let's talk a little bit about what the goal line is. Give us some examples of the types of transactions and user experiences uh, that you guys over at Chainlink believe that this development will foster in the future. In other words, if we were to come back uh, one, three years in the future and the project were successful, what would users be able to do? What would the new functionality be? Sure. So of those three functionalities, the, the first one is the most simple, where you take your existing systems, if you're a bank, and you use Swift messages to conduct events and instructions like signatures, multi-signatures, even possibly the creation of assets or, or any number of other actions on a blockchain, but not just on one blockchain, on hundreds of chains. So the problem that, problem that banks face is that they have hundreds of chains that they'll need to integrate with, and Chainlink will 
connect them to those hundreds of chains through one integration, right? It's not called chain link by accident. Basically, that's the, the, the first property that I think this will create for, uh, for banks is the ability to easily connect to hundreds of chains through one integration while still using their existing infrastructure, such as Swift messages, to conduct transactions on hundreds of chains. So that in and of itself should accelerate the adoption of blockchain technology, both in a private setting and in a public setting by banks by years which is quite significant for the blockchain industry because banks, as you know, hold trillions and trillions of dollars in assets. And this is actually driven by uh, demand from their clients. And so they are now looking at how do we properly connect with hundreds of chains that our clients might want us to transact on. And so that's the first development is the streamlining of how banks can connect to both private and public chains, both their own chain and others, uh, other chains of others, of other banks and public chains. So let's walk people through what that means in practice uh, in terms of the connection of public and private chains. Maybe you could give a sample transaction uh, just as a sort of toy model for people to understand exactly what type of functionality this would facilitate. Sure, absolutely. That's really the third value that's more advanced. That's for the... Um, participants that want to interact with um, public chains. And so what, what, what that means is basically the first stage is you want to interact with chains at all because you want to conduct basic transactions. The second stage is you probably want to interact with other private bank chains. And the, the transactions there are, for example, a client came to you and said, I would like to buy an asset from this bank that's issued by another bank, but they issued the asset on their bank chain. Right. right. So bank A is on bank chain A, bank B is on bank chain B, bank A wants to buy asset from bank B on bank chain B, and then they possibly want to store it in custodian chain C for whatever right. collective reasons. So, so that's the next stage. The third stage, the one you asked about, is when banks become more advanced and decide that the public blockchain markets are the places where they see a market for their assets. So they'll be able to create assets that are offered to their other bank counterparties that those transactions will happen through bank chains and custodian chains and settlement chains of various types. And connecting those will be a critical aspect of getting that to even begin. But then the large crypto market in the public chain sphere is still a big booming market where you've already seen some banks start to put things out. For example, Society General has put out a stable coin through their subsidiary, subsidiary, The Forge, and I expect many others to do the same to basically provide assets onto public chains. So what, what this will mean is that banks will, be more e will more easily be able to put their assets onto public chains, which, which will do a number of things. The first thing that it'll do is it'll create a, a large influx of value into the blockchain industry, which I personally expect to grow the industry well past one or two trillion to as high as 10, 20 trillion or more because banks have that many assets. The second thing that it'll do is it'll diversify the collateral that's available in the public blockchain ecosystem. And this diversification of collateral will allow more advanced stable coins, more advanced uh, DeFi products to get created. And then the third thing that it'll do is it'll bring these two worlds closer together. So I, I imagine that eventually we'll be in a world where crypto and the global financial system are all one thing. 
That's going to take more than one to three years. But I, I, right. I really expect it to just become one big thing where you right. just have different flavors of payment and financial products um, all interconnected, ideally through something like CCIP. Yeah, Sergey, I think examples like that are so helpful for helping their pe people get their heads around what's actually the goal uh, of projects like this, because it can sound very abstract, but when you walk us through step-by-step step what the potential future state looks like, what the functionality is, uh, and what the goal line is, I think it's very helpful for people to understand this. Uh, something that's come up a couple of times in this conversation is Swift. Swift, Swift messaging for people like me who've worked in the back office of a bank uh, is the interbank messaging standard. Uh, it's an incredibly important part of the global backbone of the financial services infrastructure. Talk a little bit about the interoperability between Chainlink, CCIP, and Swift. Yeah, so SWIFT is a very interesting organization. You know, they're member-owned, and you're right that they power um, bank backends for message transmission and various key events around all, all the transactions. And they power over 11,000 banks. There's not many more banks than that, frankly. So basically, SWIFT powers the, the vast majority of banks. Um, they're member-owned by their banks, and they're kind of a standard for how banks interact with transactions because they have right. a standard for Swift messages. And so what, what this looks like is you have an entire, um, basically huge army of people that have been trained within banks to use Swift messages and use various right. interfaces, literally tens of thousands of people. And those people aren't gonna get retrained on something else. Right. So you're taking the infrastructure that already exists, that already is secure, that already transacts quadrillions of dollars in value, and then you're connecting it to CCIP and the Chainlink network security model, which has itself processed over $7.7 trillion in transaction value. And you're taking the commands from banks in the SWIFT format, and right. then you're generating events based on those commands in the CCIP format on chain. So we don't need to integrate with 11,000 banks, and right. SWIFT and their bank members don't need to integrate into hundreds of blockchains. And the benefit of this is that everybody can adopt hundreds of blockchains much faster, both right. private and public chains. And the reason that I think they're, they're going with CCIP is because of the proven security model that we have around Chainlink Oracle Networks, the value that has been secured there, as well as the quality and security of CCIP, which actually goes beyond moving value and moves on to also transmission of information and messages. So basically, CCIP and SWIFT messages go together very well. Um, and this isn't even the first collaboration we've had with SWIFT. This is the second one. The first one was with a smaller group of banks. This is a much larger one, and in my opinion, a much more serious one that I think will will you know eventually lead to something real. At least that's the plan. Yeah. So when we talk about messaging formats, we're talking about the structure of the information that gets interexchanged between different financial institutions. I guess if you want a real simple way to think about this, if you imagine addressing a letter, I don't know if anybody sends those anymore, but if you put the address that it was going to in the upper left-hand corner where the return address was uh, and swapped it with the uh, with your own return address, that would cause uh, obviously chaos in the postal system. Swift is a, a bank-owned uh, entity that coordinates these messaging formats. Uh, and so it standardizes the way the message exchange takes place. So what you're saying is if you were to adopt a protocol that could talk between uh, the bank standards for messaging, which is controlled and governed by SWIFT, uh, and 
blockchains, you would essentially have uh, a mechanism to allow uh, banks across the world to communicate with different chains uh, across the world seamlessly without having to write specific types of standards for interacting with all those chains. Potentially, this is a very big deal. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a very big deal. It's why we've been working on it for over five years, and <laughs> you know, it's it's been taking an immense amount of effort and collaboration with um, some of the you know the smartest people in these organizations. And you know, DTCC and Euroclear are the largest market infrastructures. These are the largest banks like City and BNY Mellon, BNP Paribas. Um, yeah, let's, let's let's talk about exactly that, Sergey. That's a very good and important point. I think a lot of people obviously have heard the names of the banks on this list who are participating right now uh, in this testing phase, as you say, BNP Paribas, uh, BNY Mellon, Citi. Uh, these are very well-known names. What is less known, we were talking about this before the show uh, went live today, uh, DTCC, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. Uh, we were saying uh, I mentioned this idea that it's probably the most important uh, organization that uh, retail U.S. investing equity investors have never heard of. Talk a little bit about what DTCC is, what they do, and why they're so critical to U.S. equity market structure. They, they settle the equities there. They're, they're, the, they're the infrastructure that um, basically manages the securities uh, market in the U.S., the largest one, uh, on a technical level, basically, right. for uh, coordinating how the equities are resolved, settled, owned, and, and so on. Right. Um, let's let's tell people what we mean by settlement. So when you when you have a, a trade, uh, you go up to your Chuck Schwab or your E Trade account. Uh, you enter a, a buy order at a limit, uh, you know, for a hundred shares. You see that trade being executed. After the trade is executed, it has to be cleared, uh, which is the way that banks reconcile uh, the transactions, and then it has to be settled, which is the actual exchange of money. DTCC is a critical part of the infrastructure in the United States uh, for actually settling those trades. Talk a little bit about what you guys are doing with DTCC in this test and what functionality the new CCIP will enable with DTCC. Well, well that's, that's the interesting thing about this um, specific body of work is that it doesn't just include banks. It includes the, the largest messaging standard for 11,000 banks to communicate and transact, basically. And one way to think about a message is almost like a blockchain transaction. They're really not that different. Blockchain transaction is, you know, on blockchains, and a message is assigned to be interpreted by other message interpreters. Um, so you have the largest network for bank communication about financial transactions. You have the largest uh, market infrastructure that uh, settles and clears the um, securities of the largest global securities market. You have Euroclear, which is the the same thing as as DTCC for Europe. Right. You also have the the Hong Kong. Uh, you, you you have a number of other basically participants that are also very large um, infrastructures, and you have a, a multitude um, of banks. The, so what this is actually doing is it's replicating the way the financial system works now by connecting market infrastructures with banks with messaging systems, and it's wrapping that all up into this um, CCIP transmission to blockchains. So what this is basically doing is instead of just having one part of the global financial system adopt CCIP, this is looking to prove that the whole global financial system can adopt CCIP across the messaging standard, the market infrastructure, and the bank participants. So it's, it's basically all of these, right? So we're, we're, we're basically seeing a huge um, amount of value 
among all these banks and these market infrastructures gearing up to connect the blockchains. And at the moment, the, the, the primary method they're looking at is CCIP as the way to connect not only to the private bank chains, but to the public chains. And that's a very specific part of this body of work. It's not just about connecting their own system using Swift messages to bank chains. And it's not just about connecting bank chains. It's about connecting bank chains to public chains. And, and that means that we're on a path where not only will banks interact with each other efficiently, which will massively skyrocket, in my opinion, the adoption of blockchain technology in the banking sector, but we're already creating a path for the value and the assets in the banking sector, in the capital markets, to flow into the public blockchain market as long as it meets all of their relevant requirements. Sergey, as we talk about this new technology, how far away are we from the point where you see this being something that could become a part of the day-to-day -day architecture of the financial system to create and facilitate the type of integration that you're talking about here? That's very hard for me to say because you know bank adoption is to a degree cyclical. Um, I've I've only ever seen them tie their level of interest to the crypto market and its um, excitement. This is the first time that I'm actually seeing banks disconnect their adoption of blockchain technology from whatever's going on in the crypto markets. So historically, in the 10 plus years that I've been in this industry, I've seen them look at the crypto markets, say the crypto markets aren't doing well, we don't need to adopt blockchains. Now, even if the crypto markets are going through a rough patch, they are still very actively adopting blockchain technology, and that's only accelerating, which is, this is the first time I've seen that. So it's, it's hard for me to say how quickly that'll happen because usually I've only seen a kind of cyclical behavior from them. But now I'm seeing right. a new behavior and that new behavior um, you know, is new, so it's hard to predict. But well, I what, does that, what does that mean to you? What does that suggest in terms of moving away from this highly pro-cyclical view uh, of investment in blockchain to a more secular view uh, that this technology is something that's important? What does that signal to you? I think it, it signals to me that their clients uh, want to transact in what they call digital assets. Right. So they don't call them cryptocurrencies, they don't call them blockchain things, it's a digital asset. And that's an asset class, just like equities or commodities or whatever. So basically, I think we're now at the point where digital assets as an asset class have reached a threshold where banks understand there's no going back and they all, they all have digital asset teams, they all have digital asset departments, they even have multiple layers now of people so they have multiple digital asset teams, and then they have someone above those teams, and then they have a director above them. So, and, and now they also have subsidiaries that, that create various digital assets and, and put them out on their own chain or on another chain or you know, eventually onto, onto public chains. So the, the reality with this, um, I think, is that it's driven by demand. Banks are very driven by demand. I think they're going to continue to be driven by demand. And there is definitely demand for them to transact on blockchains between each other. And that demand, um, I don't think, is necessarily related to the crypto markets. Hmm. There is then a demand for them to, to, to create assets that they can put into the public blockchain markets as long as that meets all of their requirements, all of their internal requirements or their you know, ideas about risk or whatever. And that is also a direction that is in active discussions with many of them. And that they are indeed excited about, because I, I think what happened also on the public blockchain side is that once the public blockchain market passed a trillion dollars, that was it. 
basically it was it was very hard for anybody to say that this is not a market that is real and that, that this is not a market that's going to persist. And the the amazing thing about it, frankly, is that I think a trillion dollars is still relatively early. Um, in my opinion, if you take even a small percentage of all the bank assets um, that could connect into blockchains and you 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 connect those assets into blockchains, you're looking at 10, 20, 30, 50 trillion plus for the value secured in blockchains. Um, and so that's you know what I think this uh, technology could enable and that we're working to enable in a very um, security focused gradual way because that's the way in which banks operate is they need the security. And that's why I think they're also looking at adopting CCIP mm. is because the chain link security model has you know, successfully secured over $7.7 trillion in transaction value. And um, CCIP has many security features that other things just don't. And so our focus on security is in a certain sense, um, in my opinion, paying off and going to continue to pay off because it's a keystone for how things work in this industry. Mm. And, and, and if you think about our banks going to send trillions of dollars or eventually maybe quadrillions of dollars over um, a set of rails, um, the security of those rails needs to be extremely, extremely high. Um, and they can send that value using SWIFT messages and they can send it using um, their existing systems. But the question is going to be, how do they send it to hundreds of places across hundreds of different private chains, one for each bank and, you know, hundreds of different public chains that are, you know, a market. And, you know, that's the really exciting thing is, is can we create an internet of contracts, the next stage of which is actually just creating a cross-chain smart contracts so that you can build a smart contract that doesn't just live on one chain, but it lives across multiple chains in separate pieces, similarly to how web applications live across multiple clouds in separate pieces. Right. But you know that's uh, farther into the future after the value begins to move across all these systems. Yeah. yeah. To put the scope of some of these numbers uh, into perspective, $1.1 trillion right now, the approximate market cap of the total cryptocurrency complex, looking at CoinGecko right now in front of me, uh, the total market cap of Apple just shy of $3 trillion. So it does put into perspective uh, the size of this market. Uh, and as you say, uh, how relatively early we are in this process. Uh, something that you mentioned earlier, uh, the idea of the working with banks. You know, Sergey, you've spoken on this show very passionately uh, about your interest in true decentralization. What's your vision for how this decentralized world of digital assets, cryptocurrency interfaces uh, with the centralized world of banks uh, that, as we've uh, noted here, uh, control many orders of magnitude higher uh, in terms of the total capitalization of these assets? What's your vision for how those two very different views of seeing the world play together in the future? Sure, absolutely. I, I think that decentralization is going to become the minimum standard for everybody because it provides superior security, it provides superior transparency, and it provides superior control of assets by end users. So these properties of decentralization are so desirable that they will be adopted and decentralization will be adopted you know, over time. Now, you have different user groups that have different sensitivities and different demands for these properties about how they interact with financial systems and financial products. And in the crypto world, you're on one end of the spectrum where people understand what a, what a multi-sig is. They understand 
you know, how many nodes something has, they understand all these things. And so they are sensitive to these questions because they understand the difference. Then you have another part of the world where people believe that they have a password to a bank account. And because they have a password to a bank account, they quote unquote control their money. Now, things like SVB and First Republic and others make it very clear that that is not um, the case, right? You and me know that. You and me know that if we have a bank password, it doesn't mean we control our money. Now, more people realize that. And who are those people? Those people are the clients of the banks, whether they're institutional clients or retail clients or whatever clients. So basically, I believe that everybody will realize that the entire um, system that doesn't give them control of their assets, doesn't give them clarity about the risks taken with their assets, and, and doesn't give them um, an ability to know what's going on or to control risk or to control their assets or to be secure, will be eventually viewed as legacy and suboptimal. Similarly to how the internet replaced um, you know, lots of brick and mortar stuff and, and so on. So you just have different user groups that are gonna realize this over time differently at different speeds. There are still people that you know, they prefer to go and they prefer to buy stuff in person at a bookstore. That's fine, but they're not in the majority right. anymore, right? So, so there will be this spectrum and the spectrum, the majority on the spectrum will shift towards the superior security, the superior transparency and risk management, and the superior control of their assets themselves. And this is what will drive uh, decentralization. It won't be my ideological view or your ideological view or the bank's ideological view. It'll be the actual value of decentralization to end users, which is you know, what we um, believe uh, creates a better uh, world, a better ideological kind of construct of how society can work. But at the end of the day, even if you don't understand the ide ideology behind it, Right. You still get the value. Yeah, and that's an important distinction. By the way, we should just say, and this isn't tinfoil hat stuff. This is just the reality of the way uh, banks work. Uh, when you deposit money in a bank, uh, they become the legal owner of those funds. They have that liability to you as the depositor. Uh, and in the event of an insolvency, you uh, have the risk of becoming a creditor. Now, obviously, uh, there's something called FDIC that most people know about that protects you uh, to a certain threshold for deposits here in the United States. Uh, but the legal framework is exactly as you say, uh, this idea that the bank actually is the one that owns the funds. It's a liability to you, the depositor, uh, but you no longer legally uh, control those funds. A significant distinction with the decentralized world that we're talking about here, where users have the potential to self-custody their own assets uh, and to maintain, at least in theory, and there hasn't been good jurisprudence around that, but legal ownership for themselves. Uh, Sergey, I want to ask you this because I know it's something that our viewers are thinking about. We've been talking about uh, all of these new applications for CCIP that you guys are rolling out. It's been on your roadmap for some time. Uh, you announced this at SmartCon New York last year. I was there uh, in the audience when you made that announcement. Uh, talk a little bit about the role that the token link plays in this ecosystem. How does it participate? What are the tokenomics? What's the functionality with regard to the new uh, types of structures that you guys are in the process of rolling out right now? Sure. Um, so yeah, SmartCon was great. We're going to have another SmartCon in Barcelona this year. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on there. So even, even more in my expectation. Um, the, the, the economics and the token economics really can be defined in Chainlink Economics 2.0. And I suggest that everyone go there and look at that in detail. 
basically it hinges on people paying user fees in order to create greater degrees of security as greater amount of value is secured within the system. So basically as the value secured within the system um, rises, the need to pay uh, larger and larger user fees should grow because people um, will be willing to pay for greater degrees of security to guarantee the security of their you know, applications, whether it's uh, DeFi market data, gaming applications, um, other financial applications. Basically, user fees uh, should grow with the value secured because people need more security to secure greater amounts of value. So, so that's, the, that's the fundamentals of the model. Yeah. Sergey, as we come closer to the end of this conversation, talk about big picture where you see us right now. What's the current status of Web3? And let's start with the basics. How do you define Web3? Uh, and what do you think the current state of play is with the global Web3 ecosystem today? Sure. Um, I define Web3 as a trust-minimized application. And for trust-minimized applications, there is a spectrum. There are trust-minimized applications that are fully trust-minimized. In every, in every way possible. And many, you know, some of them are great and some of them are not functional or they have issues or whatever. And then there are centralized um, systems that are gradually adding more trust minimization. For example, by adding um, Oracle network chain link data or proof of reserves. You know, you can be a centralized application, but you can implement proof of reserves to prove in a cryptographically guaranteed way that you're solvent, that you have assets. And so you've become trust minimized on that dimension not on the other dimensions. So it's, it's really a spectrum. And I think what's gonna happen is that everyone is gonna move up the spectrum to become as trust minimized as possible, as long as the infrastructure and the systems allow them to do that. So, so that's how I define um, Web3. Where I see it now is really two parallel worlds still. I see the public blockchain crypto markets. That's a turbulent place. That's a place with a lot of excitement, a lot of ups and downs. And then I see the, bank capital markets world that basically has hundreds of trillions of dollars in value sloshing around in there, realizing that bank transactions can be on blockchains and the properties of blockchains are positive and the clients want to do these transactions. And, and what I see happening is that these two worlds will eventually overlap, similarly to how the internet has everybody on it, right? The internet has small startups, the internet has big banks. The internet has everybody. And so I think what, what we're going to arrive at eventually is an internet of contracts where you can access some contracts over here, but not other contracts over there. But you will have a single standard for that connection. And that is what CCIP um, is meant to be. It's meant to be similarly to TCPIP, the way that you connect all of these different blockchains, whether they're public or private. And, and so that um, world of an internet of contracts is where I think well, Web3 Web will end up. Um, it's not there now, but I think we're, we're going there. Sergey, let me ask you this. I want to talk a little bit about first principles. This is something that you and I have talked about in great detail in some of our past conversations, the podcast on the platform. Uh, I'd, I would recommend users go and uh, take a look at that because we've really talked about this in some great detail. But talk a little bit about the distinction between uh, what you see uh, as what you've described uh, as a world based uh, on the security provided by physics and mathematics on the one hand versus agreement and trust on the other, because I think it's so core to understanding your philosophy uh, and how you think about the broader Web3 ecosystem. Sure, so, so this is really the basis of trust minimized applications. 
if uh, application is not trust minimized, you're, you're trusting a single person with a server to do what they said they're going to do. And that's when you get into situations like SVB. So that is what I call brand-based trust. You're basically trusting a brand that might have existed for many years, decades, whether that's SVB or Credit Suisse, you know, or any of these banks that didn't, didn't really have a good time recently. You're, you're trusting a person to make a decision to act in your favor. And you're trusting that the brand representing that person means that there's a high likelihood they will do that, which is probabilistic. There's a probability they won't do that. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where you have mathematics that guarantees that something will happen irrespective of anybody's decision. So for example, Bitcoin. If you own the private key to Bitcoin, there's no person on the planet, as far as I know, who can make any decision that can stop you from exercising that private key to move that Bitcoin. And so there's no probabilistic nature to that. It's completely deterministic. It's completely guaranteed. And it's guaranteed by mathematics and encryption. And so the most trust-minimized application is maximally deterministic, maximally trust-minimized, maximally um, guaranteed in this mathematical sense. And the least trust-minimized application is completely based on brand trust, where you're basically ceding control to somebody, you're letting them do whatever they want, you're letting them take risks with your assets, you're letting them not inform you, you're letting them uh, you know, control your assets directly. And if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But what I'm saying is that's the old way. That's like the postal service. That's the old way to do things. The new way to do things is I know what's going on, I have control, and I have security. And, and that's the, the way that I think the, the world will work, basically because once you explain the choice to anybody, you know, I've been explaining this choice for over a decade to people, and once I actually explain the choice to the point that the person understands, and I've explained this probably, probably thousands of people at this point, um, I've yet to meet a single person that says, no, no, I don't want to have control, and I don't want to have less risk, and I don't want to have less security. Of course you want that. The challenge is how do we do that in a technical sense, which is, once again, the challenge we're working on. Yeah. Sergey, I guess if we wanted to be super nerdy, we could say that Bitcoin isn't self-probabilistic. It's just that the private key space is 2 to the 256, which is approximately a ballpark estimate range of the number of atoms in the universe. So unfathomably large number spaces. I mean, yeah, there's a debate. What does deterministic mean and you know all this stuff? But like, it's as close as, as you're not going to really get closer than math and physics and encryption to a deterministic guarantee. It's really not going to get better for you. Um, you know, you can think about the philosophy of it and the yeah. metaphysics and all these things, but, um, you know, that's my definition of deterministic. It's mathematically guaranteed. Yeah. And, and of course, we should say that the implementation uh, obviously is a, a key factor in the security uh, in that if you, you know, if you leave your private key out, uh, printed out on a table and someone steals, it doesn't really matter how vast the number of spaces that you're choosing from from private key perspective. Uh, Sergey, these conversations are always incredibly thought provoking. Always enjoy when you come on the show to have them with us. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners and viewers with today. Um, Veris in numeris. <laughs> Verify with numbers. Verify with math. Truth in math. Those are the words. 
<laughs> Sergey, thank you so much for joining us. Really always a pleasure. Good to see you too. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. That's it for today's show. Please check out the Real Vision website. We're currently running a festival of learning campaign focused on AI. You can get seven days of Real Vision premium access and insights for free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash festival of learning. That's realvision.com forward slash festival of learning. By the way, it's summer Fridays on our sister show, Daily Briefing, meaning an early start. It starts at the top of the hour, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Make sure to hop over there and check it out. We'll be back again next week with some stellar guests, including Eve LaRose, Q Hendry, and Meta Lawman. See you Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. in London. Thanks again for watching. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hey there. Thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder, today's Crypto Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Crypto Phenom Letter. This one-of-a-kind premium investment newsletter service highlights the next winners coming in cryptocurrency tokens and equities. Get special access today at phenomcrypto.com realvision. That's phenomcrypto.com 